All right. Well, you can be seated. Oh, you did it. Okay. Very good. Mary Blakely, thank you for reading, and I'm glad it is Matthew. When you said Mark, I had a panic that I told you Mark and I was going to have to change my sermon on the spot, and that wouldn't have been good. After a seven-week hiatus, it was seven weeks ago, we had our last sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, like you just saw on that, uh, that screen. Uh, we returned this afternoon, and so we've been looking at Christmas six weeks ago and, and so on, and then uh, a few other things. We had Dwayne McFeeters preach at the end of the year, and then we did a few standalone one-offs, and here we are on January the 31st. We are back to the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, arguably the most famous sermon in the history of the world. A couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned a passage, Acts chapter 17. Uh, let me just read this and kind of set the stage because we need to return to the Sermon on the Mount. Like we, we could return to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. On Sundays in our teaching, you could return to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again in your own time with the Lord. Uh, and we'll, I'll, I'll say why, but let, let me set it up by reading Acts 17 verses 26 to 27. So this is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking in Athens, Greece, on the famous Mars Hill. And toward the end of his sermon there, to the intellectuals of his day, he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. After I mentioned that passage in the sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, one of our own, Joyce Brown, came up to me to talk to me uh, about that verse. And she recalled how years and years ago, when they were being called to move and live somewhere else, God had used that verse to encourage her. And she quoted it to me from the NIV, especially that phrase, Uh, Toward the end of verse 26, it reads like this, that God determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Church, we are living under God's sovereignty at the exact time he wants us to live and the exact places, right here, right now. And we know it's been a difficult, difficult season. It doesn't appear that it's getting any easier And on the one hand, we know there's this big pandemic that has its effect in the ripples, but the other reality is life, right? I mean, the the pandemic doesn't change the fact that relationships can be hard. Work, school can be hard. Our fight for faith, our fight to walk with Jesus can be hard. Living anywhere we live can be hard. God has determined for us to be alive now in 2021. God has determined under his sovereignty for us to live where we live in this county. We live here, we live now under God's sovereign rule. And while there's all the challenges, we, we need guidance. We need guidance for the big and the everyday of our life. We need the Sermon on the Mount, and, and the Sermon on the Mount provides that. Um, I, I read, I went back to my notes, our very first sermon in August of last year, when we started this series, I quoted from commentator John Stott. He's not alive anymore. He went home to be with the Lord not too long ago, but very famous um, former pastor and scholar. He wrote this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, 
it is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. Four, it is Jesus' own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. One contemporary pastor wrote, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us what it means to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. So putting that together and kind of me restating that, the Sermon on the Mount, in it we have what it means to be a citizen of Jesus's kingdom. Our citizenship is first and foremost, as sons and daughters, if we're Christians, we are citizens of Jesus's kingdom. We have his own description of what he wants us to be and out of being how we are to live or what we're to do. And that's why we need to come back to this and now why today we resume in the section that was read for us, chapter 6. Let me do a quick recap and review. Uh, it's hard not to want to go back and read the whole thing, so let me just try to summarize. Matthew 5 starts out, Jesus sees crowds of people, and he realizes it's time to teach on what it means to be one of his followers. So he calls his disciples, which isn't just the 12, but it's that next layer of probably a hundred some people at that time anyway, of people that had committed themselves to Jesus. They, they were following this rabbi around. And so he's going to teach them. And then the crowds are listening in. They're getting an earful of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he begins with the famous Beatitudes. They provide a description of the ideal character of a true believer. We saw some of those words on the screen a moment ago. Then there's the two convicting metaphors. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We'll come back to that tonight. After those convicting metaphors, we are given six illustrations of the surpassing righteousness that he's called us to, right? Uh, we, We looked at these different examples. You've heard it said, Jesus said to the people in his day, uh, not only what the Old Testament said, but even how the Pharisees and other religious leaders had kind of twisted God's word and had their own spin on it. And Jesus says, I've come not to do away with that, but to fulfill it, to show its true intention and meaning. And and so you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, this is what God means when it comes to various things. One, one One person summarizes it like this. That expose of the heart brings us to an honest admission of what we really are. And if we're honest, it's not a pretty picture. However, that is ultimately good because seeing ourselves as we are opens us up to God's grace. And that is precisely the significance of that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is the spiritually bankrupt. Bankrupt. The people that realize, I've got nothing, God, to bring to you. I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing to pay for your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And a lot of people try. They don't try necessarily by paying, but they try by doing and thinking they can earn And that's the whole point. Again, our heart gets exposed. And so we have the ideal character that God calls us to. We fall short. We need grace. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it sends us to God again and again and again. We need grace. We need Jesus. So let me read a lengthy quote by the same commentator. He says, none of us completely meets the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. But at the same time, if we're true believers, something of the character of the kingdom something of each of those beatitudes will be authentically present in our lives. Spiritual poverty, humility, spiritual thirst, mercy, peacemaking. Along with this, there will be the presence 
of the surpassing righteousness of Christ. We may fall at times, but we will practice righteousness. So things like anger or adulterous thoughts, insincere talk, relational, will, and, and retaliation, excuse me, will progressively vanish from our lives. Love will become characteristic of us. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and with his word, including the explicit teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, we will practice righteousness. We will practice righteousness. And that brings us to tonight, what I'm calling doing our religion, part one. Doing our religion, part one. If you haven't already, I'd ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at doing our religion, and we're going to note three things. The wrong way to do our religion. Number two, the right way to do our religion. And number three, some examples of doing our religion. We're not going to talk about losing our religion. We're not going to sing that song. We're going to look at the wrong way to do our religion, the right way to do our religion, and some examples of doing our religion. So Matthew 6, 1, let's look first at the wrong way to do our religion. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, before we unpack the wrong way, and he's going to unpack it himself in verse 2, we have to first come to terms with the idea of doing religion. Okay? Doing religion. What Jesus calls here practicing your righteousness. Maybe some translations say, beware of doing your acts of righteousness. Acts of righteousness, practicing righteousness, what I'm calling doing religion. This isn't a new idea to Jesus. It's all throughout the Bible. Let me read a few passages. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 2. God says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So did you hear that phrase? Doing righteousness, doing religion. Moving into the New Testament, 1 John in his letter, John's letter, 1 John verse, uh, chapter 2, 29. If you know that God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, does religion, does acts of righteousness, has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as God is righteous. Or chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother or sister. So doing righteousness, practicing religion, is an idea very common to Jesus and his first followers to the Old Testament as well. But we, we don't like to talk that way. We're, we love to talk as good Protestants that, that Christianity is not about do, it's about done, right? We don't do anything to get God to say you're saved, you're forgiven, you're righteous. No, that's Jesus' work, and, and that is true, and we'll, we'll get there still tonight. But once Jesus has done his work, once we respond to it and receive it, we, we are called 
to do righteousness, to do acts of righteousness in response. It flows out of what God has already done. But it's kind of a weird way for us to think. We like to think that often our, our religion, our Christianity is, is ours, and, and, and it is. It's personal. But our, our faith, our religion, isn't, isn't only to be private. There, there are private things, definitely, and we're going to see some of that a bit later in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to talk about prayer in public, prayer in private. He's going to talk about fasting and how that's not supposed to be something everybody knows. So there's, there is a private element but a lot of what we do is public. I mean, we are gathered here this afternoon. You drove here. You drove to this property that was in the news yesterday, if you didn't know it was. And, and there's a lot of talk about all that stuff, practicing religion. We have a public faith according to Jesus. It's very personal to many of us. It should be, but it isn't only private. In fact, there's lots, again, of things that are done that other people see. Now, in Jesus' day, in Judaism of Jesus' day, doing one's religion often centered on three things, and that's what Jesus talks about. We're going to see that first one tonight. Um, the giving of alms. Okay, that's a lot of times how it used to be uh, rendered. In my translation, it says giving to the needy. So in Jesus' day, good, good followers of God, they, they gave to the poor, they prayed and they fasted. And those are the three things that Jesus right here in Matthew 6, uh, 1 to 18, is going to unpack. We're, we're going to spend our time in a few moments on the first one, giving to the needy. So practicing our religion, doing our religion, practicing our righteousness, it's part of being a citizen of the kingdom. We don't just get to sit and have thoughts. And a lot of people in our world say, you Christians, you can believe what you want. Just believe what you want. Just have your thoughts, have your beliefs, but don't let it affect how you live. And that's ridiculous. Anything we truly believe affects how we live. We can't just have thoughts if they're to be real thoughts. And according to Jesus, he says, presuming we will practice our religion like giving to the poor, like praying, like fasting, he, he has a warning for the wrong way that it is done. So let's look at that now. What, what is then this wrong way of, of doing our religion? Again, verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness, doing your religion before other people in order to be seen by them. That's it right there. For then, if that's what it's all about for you, having other people see you, Jesus says, you, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So the wrong way, again, to do our religion, to practice our righteousness, is when our motive from inside, our heart motive, is for other people to notice us. This doesn't contradict Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Remember I mentioned a moment ago those two convicting metaphors, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Listen to the full text, Matthew five fourteen to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works 
and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, Jesus, what is it? Do our good works before other people for them to see, or don't practice our righteousness to be seen by others? Again, the issue is the heart. Don Carson says that the issue is motive, motive, motive. There's the motive for people to praise the Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is driving at in being the light of the world. Righteous conduct under kingdom norms must be visible, not again, so that we get the attaboy, girl, but so that God wins the acclaim, right? That's what Jesus said. So that they would see and give glory to the Father. So when we do our righteousness, practice our religion, and people see, whether it's brothers and sisters in a church, other Christians in a town, in a county, others that don't believe, they, they need to see a public faith, not done for attaboys and girls, not done so that we look good and righteous, but so that people go, there must be a God. He must be doing something. That stuff they talk about, the prayers they mention, there must be a God. So Jesus, he, he expands on this more now in, in the wrong way to do religion. Now look, look at verse two, back to Matthew 6, verse two. Thus, when you give to the needy, notice he expects it. He doesn't say, if you decide to give to the needy, he says, when? One way we practice our religion is by giving to the poor, giving to the needy. When you do, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why do they sound the trumpet? That they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Now, again, we're going to come back to, to this idea of giving. Again, it's an example of practicing religion. But let's, let's note, again, the nuance of the wrong way. Jesus says, don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites do. Probably Jesus is drawing on a, a, a trumpet that people would think of, they would understand um, a, a trumpet. Probably the hypocrites, we'll come back to them in a second, probably they didn't literally do that. But the idea is like in our day when we say someone is tooting their own horn, okay? The, these people tooted their own horn, the way Jesus called it. They, they sound a trumpet. They let you know that they're giving. They let you know in, in the synagogues, in the places where they gather. They let you know in the streets. They're just tooting their own horn, letting you know the good giving they've done. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be like the hypocrite. Now, we... We typically think of a hypocrite as someone who says one thing right but lives a different way. And that's true. That's part of hypocrisy. But that's, that's oversimplifying it. Okay? One writer notes that there, in fact, can be multiple kinds of hypocrisy. Uh, and three, specifically, we should think of one. In one, the hypocrite feigns goodness but is actually evil and they know that they are being deceptive. There, there are people like that, sad to, to admit, and, and maybe you've had to encounter someone like that. In Matthew 22, Jesus will address that. There's another hypocrite who gets carried away by his or her own acting and is, is deceived by themselves, okay? They're, they're unaware of their deceit to, to, and do not fool most onlookers. They, they just get carried away and they don't even realize it. But then there's a third kind of hypocrite, one who deceives him or herself, into thinking that they're acting for the best interests of God and man, and they also deceive onlookers. 
the needy in this example, right, those that benefit from the giving of, of, to the needy, the, the, those that are receiving it, uh, they, they're unlikely to complain when they receive large gifts, and their gratitude may flatter and thus bolster the giver's self-delusion. And this writer thinks that that's likely, that third example, what Jesus has in mind. These hypocrites in Jesus' day, they wanted everybody to know, I gave a lot of money to this poor person, this needy person. I gave alms. Jesus will come back to the hypocrite over and over again in his talks, in his lessons, in his sermons. And he's going to call the Pharisees hypocrites specifically, specifically because they constantly do the right things for the wrong reasons. So in John 5, 44... It says, Jesus speaking to them, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Or later in John 12, 43, they, the Pharisees, love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the attaboy, girl. Wow, wow, you're so generous. Wow, good thing those people have you in their life. They just love to hear that. And Jesus says, that's the wrong way to do your religion. Don't toot your own horn. Don't toot your own horn. When you do, that's your reward. You're getting people to smile at you and give you the thumbs up. That's it. You have a reward. You get the attaboy, you get the girl. Pretty clear what the wrong way of doing our religion is as it relates to giving. We'll come back to that in a moment. Even good things like giving to the needy, when the motive is for others to see us and notice us and pat us on the back, it's the wrong way. We got to do a heart check. And if we're honest, sometimes we practice our religion that way. And we'll get to some examples in a moment. So if that's the wrong way, what's the, the right way to do our religion? Well, that's what Jesus says now in verses three and four. But when you give, again, not if, but when. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, he's speaking in hyperbole, okay? Do not, know what your, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If the wrong way to do our religion, to practice righteousness... Is, is to be noticed by other people when that's our motive, then to put it very simply, the right way is when simply we don't care if anybody else other than God knows. When, when first and foremost, we have an audience of one, which again, it's done publicly, but when our heart motive, our focus is, it's for him. Jesus says that is the right way. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, speaking with hyperbole. Your father will reward you. He sees, he knows. How does he, how's he going to reward? I, I wish there was a, like another verse, like a, a verse 4.5, because um, this is not the so-called prosperity gospel. Jesus isn't saying here, again, specifically related to giving, oh, just give and, and then God will give you more money too. Just keep giving and you will get that money back plentiful, then there are plenty of so-called uh, prosperity preachers who 
preach that way, talk that way, and many, many people sadly fall down that, that, that path. That, that is not what Jesus is talking about when he says, we will be rewarded. The Father who sees in secret will reward you. But here's the problem. Jesus doesn't discuss the where and the when. He doesn't say what the reward is. He's going to talk again when, when he discusses praying, when he talks about fasting, that your Father who knows and sees, he'll reward. And, and I wish, like I said, there was a like, 0.5. Well, what is it, Jesus? We don't have a locale. We don't have the nature of the reward. One, one older commentator put it like this. The New Testament evidence seems to be that both in time and in eternity, both in character and in felicity, as in causing happiness. In other words, your father, he'll reward what you do in secret. It's in public because you practice your religion, other people there, but, but he'll, he'll reward you. And you'll, you'll know, you'll know. And most of us, we get that, even if it's like hard to sink our teeth into. We, we know what it's like to do something just because it's the right thing to do and you've done something and, and there's just this subjective, that was the right thing to do. It's so hard right now because like I want to give you an example of something I just did today. <laughs> and there I have my reward. The right way to do our religion is when we do it for God to see and notice when it's in, before an audience of one, even though we live in public. So, so let's move then, number three, to some examples. And we'll end today here with this. The first example is here in our text, giving to the needy. And again, for Jesus' followers then, as for us now, we're called to, to give to the needy. The, the New Testament is loaded with examples and specific calls to this. The Apostle Paul, half of the time in his letters, he's writing to say, thank you for your donation to the you know, church in Judea. I'm coming to you because I want to get that gift I've asked you to give because there's a famine and there's a need. And, and he writes over and over thanking them for participating and calling them to give. In fact, if you haven't read or thought about it in a while, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 are two of the best chapters on a theology of giving. Jesus assumes and makes plain that his followers, his disciples, that's us, his sons and daughters, his kingdom citizens would give to the needy. And just because in his day, good, pious Jews practiced their righteousness by giving, fasting, and praying, good, grace-filled, faith-filled, pious followers of Jesus ought to do those things and other things. We ought to practice our religion. And so again, we have this first example here of, of giving. Again, there's many, many passages that speak on this. Let me read one from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15, 11. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. God called the people of Israel to that. And again, he clearly calls us to that type of generosity in our day as well. 
Do you give to the needy? Do you give generously? Do I? Jesus does expect it. He expects that when you give, you won't toot your horn, you won't let others know, but you'll meet needs. You'll meet needs. So there's, there's an example. It's not my own, so I'm, it's not my horn I'm tooting here. Just in the last week within our own church, there was a need that a family learned of another person in our church financially, and this family reached out to the elders and said, we, we want to help this, this other person in the church. We don't want that person to know. We, we want to just, like, you know, be a blessing. Can, can you make that happen? And, and, of course, the elders said, we, we can do that. This, this family heard of a need, and they just decided, we, we have to help. We, we can't not help. We know of this need. We have to help. So, again... It happens all the time. I can think back years ago when um, in our own family, um, my, my parents were overseas and my dad suffered a heart attack and a family in the church reached out so that my brother could fly halfway around the world to be with my family. They didn't toot their horn. They weren't wanting everyone to know. They just wanted to meet a need. Here you go. We, we heard this need. We feel convicted. We can help. Here, here you go. So those are just two examples. There's so many other ways we can give to the needy. And, and we know that there's lots of needy in our land, in our town, in our county. What it looks like is going to be different. Jesus expects us to practice our religion, to do our religion. And one of the things we're to do is to give to the needy. So I just simply encourage you, ask, Lord, am I being generous the way you would want me to be generous? Am I giving out of the overflow? And again, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's Paul's point. He says there that Jesus, though he was rich, right? King Jesus, though he was in heaven, he left heaven and came here to give to us. And because of that, we give. So there's the gospel even in in our giving. It's overflow out of what God has done for us in Christ. But, so that's giving. But what about other examples of doing religion? Jesus will talk about prayer. He'll talk about fasting. We'll get to those in the weeks to come. But what about going to worship? This is doing our religion. This is practicing our righteousness. What about participating in other Bible studies, prayer meetings? Those are things where we do our religion. Posting things online, verses or quotes, reading things, letting people know... I, we live in a world where we are in the public and people see and people know. Are we doing our religion, practicing it with others seeing out of a heart motive that wants God to be glorified? Matthew 5, letting our light shine for God to be on display for his fame, for his renown to be made much of. Or are we doing whatever we're doing so that others will look and, and clap and pat us on the back? It comes down to what's in our heart. As I mentioned at the beginning, the Sermon on the Mount, it crushes. I didn't say that, but it's what I was saying. We, we see what it's supposed to look like for us to be kingdom citizens, sons and daughters. And we're called to these things. And here we're called to, to practice religion a certain way. 
And the truth is often we like, we like the praise of people. We like to toot our horns. So what do we do? What do we do as we come to the end of a message like this where Jesus says, practice your religion. Don't do it this way, but do it this way. There's, there's confession before the Lord and an admission, God, search my heart. Try me and know me and, and get rid of the junk, the, the approval that I seek from others. Get, get rid of that. But then the Sermon on the Mount, and even right here, it, it, it ought to drive us back to Jesus because what Jesus calls us to, he, he equips us for. And that's really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to keep making that point again and again and again. When we, when we fall, let's, let's remember Jesus and, and stick with me here at the end. This is probably the most important part of the message. We have Jesus. We have a Savior. He forgives us when we fall short. Right? And this is what took place on the cross. Theologians call this his passive obedience. He hung on the cross to die for us, to be our forgiver, our savior. But we also have what theologians call Jesus' active obedience. They use that to describe his life. So Jesus as our savior isn't only what he did on that cross for us to forgive, but he actively obeyed. He, he actively knew how to give to the needy without tooting his own horn. He, he knew how to practice his religion. He did it perfectly so that him as our Savior isn't just that we'll be forgiven, but we have his righteousness. And when we're in Christ, we're united. There's this union so that as a Christian, God sees Jesus's righteousness, sees Jesus's payment, and then he sees us. God sees what Christ did if you're a Christian. It's a glorious, glorious truth. So when we get crushed, so to speak, by a command to practice our religion a certain way, we, we go, Lord, I'm not, I haven't been giving the way you call me to. Thank you for my Savior who forgave me, for my Savior who did it perfectly. The one Hebrews 12 says I'm to keep my eyes on. And we, we, we praise the Lord for him and for grace. Or to put it another way, Galatians 2.20, a verse probably many of you learned at some point in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, somewhere along your journey. I have been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, the Apostle Paul wrote this, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, insert here, doing my religion, The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live practicing my religion. It's Christ. What I'm doing, he's doing through me. Or one other way to think about it, even Jesus was reading in Luke the other day. In Luke chapter (laughs) 4, this is crazy for us to think about, right? The Son of God. Luke 4, it says that Jesus was full of the Spirit that Jesus was led by the Spirit. And then a few verses later in Luke 4, 14, it says that he continued in the power of the Spirit. If, if Jesus had to live and be led and do ministry in the power of the Spirit, maybe our practicing our religion needs to be in the power of the Spirit. So it's not us, it's Christ living in us. Our eyes are on him, our perfect, obedient one whose righteousness is our own in the power of the Spirit. He works in and through us. That's what it looks like, church. We're called to do 
religion. We're called to practice righteousness. We're called to be citizens of the kingdom like we started with tonight. We're called to hear Jesus' own description of what he wants us to be and do. Let's do it his way. Let's not do it the sinful way. Let's pray. So now, God, we come to you, and it's a tricky thing if we're honest, if I'm honest, because our heart is deceitful. We may think, I may think that my heart motive is right, but there lingers, again, that temptation for others to notice. So strip us of that. Help us follow you and love you and do what you've called us to do out of the overflow of what you've done, Jesus, for us, out of the overflow of our union with you, out of the overflow of being in step with you, but not to be noticed, not to have our horns tooted, but for your fame and your glory to be made much of. And we need help. I need help. So this word teaches us tonight. It reproves us. It corrects us. It trains us. Help us submit to it and come to it. Help us as individuals, as families, as a church to learn to practice our religion the right way. I ask in Jesus' name.